Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game. I'm your host, DM Neil, aka Jote Moniac, and today we're going to be talking about Solar Punk, Hope Punk, something along those lines. There is a long line of games and modules and things with that dark, gritty, grim future, and as someone who has invested way too much money in Warhammer 40,000. I know those all too well and love them deeply. But at the same time, there is a different side of that spectrum and we're going to be talking about that today with Ajit George, who has done several bits of work for Wizards of the Coast and is just an awesome person and I was very happy to discuss Solar Punk with them. But before we do that, we have an iTunes review that we wanted to read and this one comes to us from Fitty Peace. F-I-T-T-Y-P-E-A-C-E. And they entitled it, My Brain is Bursting. Five stars. I find out about this podcast from a Google search, and it may have been the best decision I've made in years. I've been DMing for a couple of years after a group of friends and myself discovered Critical Role and decided to give DMing a try. Well, there you go, Fitty Peace. Thank you for that review. And... Thank you, Google SEO, for connecting us with this listener. And with that out of the way, let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? The flat meat back on the menu, boys. So today for the meat, we have a very special guest. It is Ajit George, who... There is a long list of fun things that I get to say after this. One of the creators and project leads for D&D's Radiant Citadel, as well as one of the writers for Ravenloft. And and I, I think I've got this written down correctly. One of the recent Diana Jones Award winners for excellence in gaming. Ajit, thanks for coming on and spending some time with us. I, and this is, this is a topic they've already heard it in the intro, but this is a topic I'm very excited to talk about. Neil, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about Journeys to the Radiant Citadel or Ravenloft or whatever we'd like to touch on. Perfect. And so as always, we, we could do a little bit of a quick interview so that the listeners can get to know you. And the, honestly, it's more just for, for me too, uh, so that we can get to know each other a little bit better before we dive all the way in. Um, but is there a little bit that you can tell us about yourself, your RPG journey, or just kind of anything you think the listeners might be interested in? Yeah, sure. Longtime player of games. I started, you know, I think probably second, third grade with D&D's Red Box. Absolutely loved it. It was the weirdest, strangest thing I'd ever seen. And I got my hands on and, and was just completely immersed in it. But it was hard to find, you know, fellow players. It's not the modern era. This is like early 80s, I think. And so, you know, if you didn't have a couple of kids at school, you couldn't find players to play with. Uh, there were no online options. And so um, I didn't really get into playing regularly until high school. And that I had a great campaign that started from freshman year until the end of senior year, and I played just compulsively all the time um, through high school. It was a real salvation for me. And I think particularly it was a real salvation for me because like a lot of geeks uh, of that era, you know, geeks were not cool during that era. And, you know, we kind of were all the misfits and weirdos. But also, I was also one of the only brown kids in the entire school, and there was an extra kind of sense of isolation and, you know, alienation. 
And so D&D and gaming was sort of a refuge for me. But a, but a complex refuge in that, like as much as I love the game and I love the imagination and the creativity, at the time, the art and the characters, the stories around it were, were very white-centric and from a white lens. And, you know, on one hand, I could imagine myself differently, but as a, you know, kind of a teen kid who's sort of surrounded by media that tells you, you know, the normal for America is white and like, you know, most of the art is white and most of the characters are white and most of the stories are white. It, it was a little hard, you know, it was a little hard to find my place. Fast forward many years. And then about 10 years ago, I got back into gaming. I, you know, I played on and off through my 20s. But, um, you know, about 10 years ago, I started gaming again. I got really, really back into it. But I, th- I think I, you know, with a little bit more maturity, and a little bit more thought process around it. And one of the things I started to ask more questions about is like, why actually are there a lot of brown brown and black people in games and why aren't there more designers and more art and more stories when i did get back into games about 10 years ago i did so from the lens of like somebody who wanted to contribute to games and wanted to tell stories um that spoke to me um that kind of spoke to my indian heritage and um, spoke to you know maybe brown kids who are growing up and might might read my work and be like hey wow cool i do see myself in this this is awesome you know i'm excited to like feel the story tells something about me and so I almost exclusively write from that perspective. The very first thing I ever wrote for, for, for any kind of game was an indie game. And it was an urban city guide, uh, urban fantasy city guide to the city of Bangalore, which uh, had never been touched. It's a city in India, never really been touched in, 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 um, in a game before. And so I was the first writer to take an urban fantasy perspective on Bangalore um, and kind of kept on working my way through that talked about these questions in, in different forums and different conversations. And then um, in 2020, I got tapped uh, by Wes Snyder to write for Ravenloft. Uh, and that was kind of that that journey to where we are today. You know, I can kind of talk a little bit more about Ravenloft and how I got into, how I got asked to to do Journeys to the Rain and Citadel. But yeah, that's, that's sort of a background to me. That is awesome. And I like saying this, I'm glad you're back. You know, not all the stories end up a uh, person finding that love for the RPG again, because there's a lot of stories that go, that skew a lot more negative. Um, and then those experiences end up being the thing that that person steps away forever. So from, from me to you, I'm glad you're back in and you're all in because you're, you're writing straight for, for Watsi and you're, like you said, you're writing from a perspective that is limited, unfortunately, and you're giving voice to those and helping others see what can be done with D&D. And I think it's awesome. So the other question I have, is there anything that you're currently working on? And I always got to throw out the fun caveat that you can tell me about. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, I can't talk about it in, in terms of RPG writing. I am, you know, in the final stages of negotiation about a pretty major IP. I'm excited about it. You know, I'm trying to balance that with my full-time job. So I'm going to actually probably not take the kind of lead role, but I will probably take a secondary support role in something that is... You know, we'll probably come back and have a conversation around it because it's, it's a very well-known IP and it's pretty big. Um, and there's a, I think there's going to be a lot of excitement around it. So can't talk about that so much. I am currently also organizing uh, for a con in the, the Bay Area in San Francisco called Big Bad Con. And um, I was the creator of the first networking event for people of color in games. And so the idea was, okay, so how do you break into games at all. And if you're a person of color, how do you break into games? Because, you know, a lot of data shows 
you know, most jobs, about 80 to 85% of all jobs are acquired by people in your network, right? And well, if your network, and then, then there was another piece of data that said most uh, white people have 90 white friends for every black friend they have, right? And so, you know, if, if that's the case and your network is almost entirely white and you're like kind of a lead game designer and you, 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 only, you only hire from your network, how do, how do you hire, you know, some brown and black people? Well, I created a networking event that would put industry veterans from all different areas of the industry in the same room with a lot of up and coming uh, brown and black designers. And I ran it successfully in 2019. Huge hit. Um, a lot of people got hired. It was the Coast, Critical Role, Darrington Press, Heizo, Path, uh, Pathfinder, um, you know, Paradox, so on and so forth from it. And so we're replicating that again this year uh, now that you know the pandemic's kind of in, in a more manageable position and a little bit safer to hold an event like that. So that's that's something gaming related, though. It's not a, not a writing design. Uh. No, that's perfect. And I, as someone who lives in California, I will change my ways and definitely go to Big Bad Con because it wasn't on my radar because I'm so used to just thinking about the elaborateness of just, okay, I got to get flights. I got to book hotels. I got to, I got to, yeah. I got to. And, and then in my head, I'm like, you fool. Just look closer. And then the idea that I could have easily driven to Big Bad Con. So that just means next year, without a doubt, I will be there. Yeah, it's it's worth coming. You know, it's a, this year it's a small con. It's about maybe 600 people, 600 plus. And about 20% will be industry people. So you you can't literally be in a game without like having somebody from one of these companies nice. be in your game or walking the halls and, and meeting somebody. It's 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 definitely worthwhile. It's It's a fun, small really smart con with a lot of cutting edge games. It's a place where a lot of experimental games come out, um, a lot of play testing. So it's a great con. That is my particular brand because the one I have gone to for a lot is a catacon, which started from uh, the RPG Academy and is basically the, like you're saying, you're just like spinning that network out a little yeah. bit bigger each time. And yeah, it's only a few hundred people, but then that same rate, um, where it's 20 people. And so then I end up playing games that become really popular games. But then I remember when they were just games written down on note cards that get handed out by the game designer directly. Yeah. Um, and it's hard not to learn a game really well when the person who made it is the person illustrating how it yeah. should be played. It's a lot of fun. <clears throat> so our third one is our surprise question. And so I, I've been trying to come, I always like kind of tailoring that surprise question so mine that I feel like we haven't asked a lot of our guests before, what over your span of your RPG career, what is your go-to class? Like what is the one that always draws you to it? And then the follow-up of course would be like, why are you, do you feel like you might be drawn to that one? Yeah. Oh, that's a tough one. I like paladins and I like paladins because I like their fanatical point of view. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think because my, I myself um, am a true believer in my causes and the things I work for. Um, you know, in my, my full-time profession, I am director of operations of the Shanti Bhavan Children's Project. It's an international education uh, and poverty alleviation program based in India. And I believe completely in our work and the effectiveness of our work. Uh, in games, I believe in the advocacy for people of color, for the opportunities to, to acquire jobs and to uplift themselves um, and to get, you know, to, to be part of the story and be part of the media. And so I think whenever I work towards anything, it's with a real sense of belief in the work that I'm doing and a genuine, like, love of the work. And, and I think paladins are interesting to me because they have that really, like, they are, they are the true holy warriors for their gods and they really believe in what they're doing. 
Um, and so I, I really, I think they, that's my favorite. I like it. Yeah. And there's so many different ways you can play a paladin. You know, if we want to talk about from the last 10 years, opposed to the red box days, there's, sure, there's, sure. there's very different ways to, uh, to play it. And I, and I love that because I think it reframes the way a paladin should be played. It's just someone that is all in for their particular cause. Yeah. Good or good or ill. Yeah, that's how I play paladins. I know there's different ways to interpret it, but I think this is where it's like they really believe in what they're what they're fighting for. They believe in the cause. They believe in the mission. They're out there kind of trying to to, to forward that mission in the best of ways, or sometimes destructively, <laughs> you know, depending on how, how they play. So with those out of the way, one of the things that we had gone back and forth about, and I, I think it's a wonderful topic to discuss to further promote the idea of solar punk or hope punk it's a a fairly new genre as i was looking into kind of its its origins or where people think it started you know of course like the the zeitgeist works in a particular way and there's a lot of reasons we got to where it is um but throwing those words out there like what are the things that come to mind when i say solar punk yeah you, you know solar, solar punk you're right is it's pretty new um it started you know, my understanding is that the term was coined in like 2008 on a blog, and it was sort of a, a rejection or a pushback against um, cyberpunk and dystopian literature, particularly sort of like, you know, cyberpunk really came out of, I think, like the 80s. And, and it was really about like, kind of, it, it tied into the Cold War, Reaganomics, some like there was definitely some orientalism coming in around there. You know, it also... Yeah, Solarpunk definitely pushes back against the like, kind of the, the cyberpunk genre, but it particularly pushes back, I think, against grimdark and and dystopian literature in general, which says, you know, I think dystopian literature is really about the road is grim and there's only one road and you're going to take this road and that road may be interesting. There's a lot of interesting stories you could tell around it, but it's going to be, I think it, it's it, there's a finality to that road, right? And then grimdark is like, everything is terrible and, and it's the world's like going to hell, but you know, you you can survive it, but only if you become as dark as the rest of the world, and you must embrace the darkness to to survive and overcome the darkness, right? And both of those themes, or all of those themes, really don't resonate with me. There's a nihilism and and kind of like a, a doomsday kind of ma- mindset around that that's really kind of frustrating to me. And I think about solar punk. I think about community. Um, I think about a symbiotic relationship with nature in the in the environment around us, um, a sustainability, you know, and, and an ability to to envision the future optimistically and positively, and that it isn't winner take all, but it is a rising tide lifts all boats, right? That that there is ways that we can work together, and all of us can get something out of it. It is really though about living thoughtfully and mindfully and really strategically with your environment in a very positive collective uh, movement. And I think those are kind of the key things. It's, it's really, there's a very strong environmental aspect. There's a very strong communal aspect. There's a sustainable aspect. I think there's an anti-capitalist a- a- aspect to it. Um, it. It doesn't need to be purely, um, you know, socialist, uh, though I think there's socialist elements to it in, in the best of ways. And when I think about socialism, I think, you know, people think of it as a really like negative word. And, I, you know, or at least in the in United States, there's a negativity attached to it. And I think they don't understand that socialism is really like public highways are socialist, right? A public school is a socialist institution. You know, veterans being paid, uh, you know, pensions and GI Bill are all socialist. Uh, Social Security is socialist. <laughs> These are all things that it's like, in the name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All the things that like take care of 
take care of you and make your life easy um, and make your life accessible. You know, hospitals, those are all have social health. And those are all real positive. Yeah, and I think because I did a lot of research because I was so so fascinated with the concept. Yeah. I think one of the things is like that may be a pretty strong misinterpretation of the idea of that solar punk or that hope punk is because the word dystopian is often used with the other side, that utopian is potentially used. And I don't necessarily see it that way in, you know, a lot of what we're going to say right now is, is personal perspective. But like yeah. from my perspective, I don't necessarily see it as utopian in the sense that there, quote, are no problems. It's just yeah. it's a society that's set up to handle handle problems because with yeah. grimdark it's like i don't know i just i just need to figure out today and maybe think about tomorrow like that's all i got whereas with this like there there are just structures and things like the things developed to be able to handle those and even if it is some cataclysmic event that you introduce to a solar punk setting it's still a societal thing where everyone realizes that's a problem for all of us and all of us will work on this problem with the hope that we will accomplish it not you you know the blood red sun sets on on the day and things like that and like you said it's this infusion of hope in in everything instead of fear yeah it's it's, it's a hope-based society versus a fear-based society it's a really great way of thinking about it it is one that has collective strategic smart long-term thinking right i think of solar punk as like a community of society that has been very smart and really strategic about um surviving and thriving in challenges and growing and building um, in those challenges the challenges don't defeat them and it challenges don't bring the worst out of them challenges actually bring the best out of them as they work together with one another and when I think about Grimdark, it's like, yeah, today I'm just going to pick up my sword and kill the thing in front of me that's going to try to kill me. And maybe tomorrow I'll die, but I'm going to fight, you know, as best I can. And it's like, great, that's maybe going to be sustainable for about a week and then you're going to be dead or you're just going to be exhausted. Right? Like there's no long term thinking in Grimdark. It really is really short term. It is really, uh, you know, you know, just just the moment right in front of you from moment to moment living um, and just kind of eking out an existence. And that feels very this very seems very hard to to have a, a fulfilling life out of that. It feels like wow, that sounds pretty brutal. It might make for very interesting short-term stories, but even then, after a while, that story feels like it can get dull, right? Um, whereas I think, uh, as you said, solo punk is not the absence of challenges or the absence of problems. It is simply that the problems are addressed slightly differently. That this is not problems aren't about conquest, right? It, it is conflict there may be conflict but it's not the end is not a conquest of somebody else or some some other group um that that we can find these solutions to problems through other methodologies and that's what i really like about it and and this interesting thing is that especially with the radiant citadel because i always like using some of the watsi material as a touch point to start to have those conversations because that's most likely the things that are on our listeners shelves are books yeah. um from D and watsi but the idea that you can also have those solar punk themes and it not necessarily be the whole campaign but you find yeah. a community that these are the ideals that they've adopted and it could be because yeah grimdark 100 percent of the time just is dark and and it, like you said it can <laughs> yeah. get it can get tiresome but like having either that sea change in the campaign that you're running or having that bright spot within it so that they you know they these characters and potentially your players can still have the infusion of hope by meeting this community so 
I guess I'll just kind of throw it out there. Like, how does the Radiant Citadel fit into like that kind of solar punk mold and like adding to that genre? I mean, the, the, the Radiant Citadel itself, itself is very solar punk, right? It is the book I think is a, a whole punk kind of book, but the, the Radiant Citadel is very a solar punk in that it's not a utopian society, but it, it, it has a it has a quasi utopian feel to it. That the community has figured out ways to coexist, and it's a very um, diverse and heterogeneous community. You know, you've got 15 different cultures, major cultures that make it up and probably, you know, dozens more that, that are also immigrants of that city. It's an immigrant city and they all kind of figure out ways to live peacefully, coexist with each other. But in a, in econo- in an ecologically sound um, environment, while being surrounded by a pretty harsh uh, environment around it, the ethereal plane, right? This It's this floating city carved out of um, a fossil of an unknown creature. That surrounds this life-giving giant gem called the Auroral Diamond. And, you know, the, the the life-giving gem allows some of the magic that happens in the city, right? Like the vegetation and the farms and the growth, all of that there and, and healing and water and so on. But then you've got the, the ethereal plane around it, which is which is pretty dark and pretty dangerous. Um, and so they figured a way that they have to survive on the city and work together to survive the larger challenges of the ethereal plane, but also because they're connected to a bunch of other civilizations. And, and there's interesting, you know, I think if you look at the text and you, you you skim it, you might be like, oh, this is like, everything seems really great and everything's peaceful. And it's like, yeah, but you actually have to look at what the, the connected home civilizations are, right? So there's definitely conflict there. Um, one of the home civilizations, Akran Sangar, is ruled by a by an angel with very strong beliefs about what is right and wrong. And um, he is in conflict with, you know, the, one of the leaders of the Raided Citadel, right? And so there are some very strong external challenges. There are going to be internal challenges to different ideologies, different religious beliefs, um, different ways of thinking about things. You know, how do we deal with immigrants? How do we deal with uh, refugees? There are all these different push points of possible conflict, but they're not conflict that usually go, I'm going to beat it with a stick, a conflict and solve it, right? It actually is long-term conflict that is that simmers under the surface for a little bit and then boils up over time. And I think that actually makes for a really great long-term campaign. But you can have some really interesting short-term uh, conflict on this, in the radio Citadel without a problem. Yeah, the idea of any two cultures mixing on any level, it, it, that there wouldn't be touch points, <laughs> touch points of discussion um, is... Yeah, that's just not how it works. Um, it's not. I mean, I, I only have four people living in this house of mine, and it doesn't work. It doesn't even work on a day to day basis. So the idea, that, you know, that two cultures. But again, it, looking to that solar punk, it's not that those aren't there. It's that, like you mentioned, it doesn't turn to stabbing each other or casting fireball or lightning bolt. It turns into discussions, and that those tensions are still there, but. It, the resolution changes into something different because if it's grimdark and I go into area B and I'm from area A, stab. Like that's right. the, that's the solution nine times out of ten. And the tenth one is just casting magic missile. But <laughs> but but the idea that you know those things are there. And I think one of the other things is if you look at the overall space available on the Radiant Citadel. There just needs to be smarter use of it because you do have the, these cultures all working in their individual areas, but like there's only a limited amount of space. So you just have to work together to make the most out of what's there. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think you've got limited space. There's a hostile external environment. There are um, so many different 
cultures and, and backgrounds and ideologies and ethnic heritages. Um, and so they have to work together. And, and that, that's really emphasized in kind of like maybe the leadership council. It's called the Speakers for the Ancestors. And the Speakers for the Ancestors have enormous, enormous power where they could, um, one of them could just decide to turn off all trade to the city. And there's these Concord jewels that are kind of these transport vessels that, that transport, you know, goods and materials back and forth from the Radiant Citadel. And each of the speakers of the ancestors have a power to freeze all of those Concord jewels and stop them from doing trade. And that's sort of a, a powerful veto uh, power that is sort of that was my way of thinking about sometimes the dysfunction of the U.S. government and how just a couple of people can can freeze all movement um, in legislation. And yet showing that in this case, these 15 people from different ideologies have so far to this point um, made it work um, and that they don't use that veto power. But it's got to be some really challenging negotiations and maybe some trading and maybe some. Maybe there's some bribery even happening at times, right? I don't go into that. I let the, the DMs, I'm like, hey, you take this in the direction you want, um, how these, these negotiations survive and how the city still survives. Uh, but fundamentally, I think what the speakers and sisters understand is they are shepherds and they are like the caretakers of the city and like they have to negotiate, they have to find compromises. And I think that's what's interesting to me is that you know, it's not that everybody gets along um, automatically, it's that they understand there's something bigger than themselves, something larger and more important than their own individualistic needs that they're responsible for, and that they are going to come to the table and negotiate and find solutions, sometimes complex solutions and, and convoluted solutions, which I think which is a touch point and launch point for adventurers, right? That's where the stories come in. And that's where the PCs are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to work with this you know, speaker for the ancestor to find a compromise in the situation or you know, they're, they're tasked to, to find a, a middle ground or maybe one of the PCs becomes a speaker of the ancestor and they're oh, stuck right. in this like really complicated role. And they're like, oh, crap, I got to go find go do something here to solve this problem. Well, I think about like in our modern world and just just in the past several years, the idea of like w the amount of globalism that we have reached that I don't think individual societies, you know, be it America or anywhere else, have fully realized and, and some of that comes to light when conflict happens in a different area, only to find out that maybe that person was producing something that, that is sent literal thousands and thousands of miles away. I mean, again, California is a touch point. Let's say California just fell off, you know, which isn't, it's not out outside the complete realm of possibility. <laughs> um, big enough earthquake, we just pop off. It ends up being like the third lar largest agricultural production if it just became its own country. And the idea yeah. that like, but it's not just to people in California, it's across the whole world. So, you know, if it, if you're not having those discussions and putting certain things aside to look at society as a whole, then, you know, those conflicts become so much more expanded and just so much more intense if you're, if, when you look at it without looking at it from like that solar punk idea. Yeah. And, and, and you, you touched on something, Neil, that, that is, you know, in my writing, I, I, the, the Citadel in many ways is a microcosm of a lot of different things going on in our modern world. I, I wrote that piece in 2021 and, and was really, there were so many things happening at the same time while I was writing it. And, you know, the, what you just said about like, Hey, we're all interconnected and one thing can have a, be a, a ripple effect through to others is about the Radiant Citadel simultaneously. You get 15 different major cultures tied together there. And the impact in one area can have a ripple effect across, especially since all of these 15 cultures um, do a lot of trade through the Radiant Citadel. And then if, if things go sideways, 
that has an impact on you know the other civilizations. They're, they are really interconnected. There's a lot of juggling, and it's um, you know there's just some interesting larger stories that can be told with the Radiant Citadel that we don't always get with D and D. And I think that's what is exciting to me is that we can we can look at D and D from a different lens and a different angle and say, hey, there's there's some interesting stories that really relate to the real world and my personal experiences that I can have. Sure, you want to go kill the dragon or, or explore a dungeon. All of that's possible within this. We have a dragon. There is a dungeon, more than one dungeon in, in the book. Uh, there's all of those stories to be told, but there's also larger stories to be told. It just dawned on me the, the way that a, a really small occurrence, the, I'm trying to find all the right words. My brain's going all kinds of places, and I'm trying to find all the right words. But the idea of once you have that inter- interconnectedness, a small occurrence can create something so large and i was looking it up because i couldn't remember when the ever given went sideways in the Suez canal not nine months ago the whole world was like oh okay we can't send anything to anyone anywhere ever for any reason um what do we do and it was it was like do we wait it out those six days and there were the people that said no because i can't tell how long it would take so i send you know i'm sending my boat this other direction now i'm out multiple weeks but then there's this compounding effect with you know the pandemic was still going on so even when things did go there there wasn't enough people to process the things that finally did show up and it's literally a boat a boat went sideways yeah one yeah, we, we, we live in a very interconnected yeah. world and the, the trade aspect of the radiant citadel really speaks to that you know I, I wrote that you know kind of looking at these issues that were coming excuse me get coming into play and so uh you know it kind of speaks to that but even in even in something like the shield bearers which is an organization within the radiant citadel and uh different people have interpreted different ways so they say it's like it reminds them of star trek it reminds them of this it's like well actually that wasn't really what i was thinking <laughs> um if there's there's a piece of media that was influential to the, the to the radiant citadel the, the most influential sci-fi and fantasy thing that i read around it was the expanse um i huge fan of the science fiction oh, yeah. um, show and the expanse really influenced my thinking about a few different things around the radiant citadel but in many ways the the the, the shield bearers are sort of meant to be like navy seals or delta force um i think of them as being dropped you know dropped into the most dangerous hot zones out there where like things are going sideways things are going real bad and um these are the, the elite units of uh, the radiant citadel and they're dropped in there but with some very specific rules they can't engage uh, without being engaged first. So they can't attack an enemy until they are attacked first. And their real mission is not to go like, you know, kill dragons or overthrow governments. Their mission is to go rescue people, you know, civilians who are in danger and bring them out of that danger and bring them back to the Rain Citadel for either to 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 relocate somewhere else or to even just, you know, take a new home in the Radiant Citadel. I remember in some feedback uh, notes I got from this, you know, one of one of the designers who was like looking at this was like, wow, you know, if they can't attack first, how is that going to work? Because like, you know, things get real messy really quick in D&D and like, you know, players are going to want to like throw that fireball first or shoot that magical missile first if they're if they're in, in peril. And I was like, great, that's exactly what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for them to make messy decisions or complicated decisions. Because sure, you could be like, well, these bandits are going to go kill all these villagers and I'm going to kill the bandits first and perceive them even though the mission is like, you're not allowed to do that until you're attacked and you're actually supposed to just go save the villagers and not stop the bandits per se. Maybe you kill those bandits, but maybe those bandits were, you know, um, connected to a noble from another kingdom. And now this noble is like, you just killed my people. Wait a second. Did the Radiant Citadel declare war on my kingdom? 
And then the Reagan Citadel is now embroiled in a political turmoil with another kingdom because the PCs made a, a random decision. And that is me talking about a bunch of different things, either about D&D tropes, where PCs just go around and kill things randomly and don't really think about the consequences of those things. And also, it's a question around American interventionism. It's like, I, I believe there are places and times where America has to step in and, and do some good. But sometimes there's some real strong questions about what what is good mean, whether this is the right decision, and ask some complex and challenging questions. And I yeah. don't get, provide easy answers. And this is one of those things where I say, hey, the right Citadel is not absent of challenges. It's just these challenges are not necessarily the simplest challenges or the ones that you just like, I binary challenges. I try to avoid that. You know, I, I'm like, hey, this is not simple, easy solutions. For you you got to think about this. Yeah, history has proven that the uh, the next guy theory isn't always a great turnout. Well, yeah, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of examples of how the next one may be much worse than the yeah. previous one. Um, and yeah, trying to figure out how those conflicts work, and like you said, that's you know it's un, it's it's unfortunate that there's a there's also a lot of examples of again using two you know two rival let's just say rival factions just to just to blanket the statement of. If I do this, then you do that. So I do this, that you do that. And that just becomes history to the point where yeah. even that first that first slight is something that is no longer even understood or known. It's just I know that that's what we do going forward. Um, and yeah, finding different solutions for those kind of things. And also the idea that if you even want it like a more difficult version of D&D in a good way. This is this is one of the things putting certain limitations on what a player can and can't do is one of the things as a DM to try and stretch the players because it's it's one thing that you, you know I'm trying to think of the most positive way to say this but like if I get another athletics check from my fighter it's like yay cool yeah yeah, yeah. you did it um but the but the idea of either working together or working to find solutions that stretch the player or them finding a different way that how does athletics work is athletics like yeah I I run over and I jump this wall and I stab the guy or is it I am able cuz now I'm thinking of I'm super into um fantasy football so my brain sometimes go there because we're mid-season <laughs> um but the idea that like could i pick someone up and i use my athletics check to do some of the moves that i've seen where these you know this 180 pound guy is trying to avoid these 300 pound guys because they don't want to be hurt and yeah. so the idea of using the athletics check in a more inventive way because uh -huh. i can't because i can't choose to use a sword but, but it's also because i'm trying to protect this person at the cost of myself yeah. And, and I think off of that, too, is just simply that, like, it's almost even going, hey, my fighter is actually more complex than like a meathead with a sword. Right. It's like, you know, sometimes I think we go to the to the core stereotype and it's like, sure, maybe that's like how the character started. Maybe he was the guy that was just like, I'm brawn with a sword and I'm just going to beat things down. And then he suddenly put into these more complex situations where. He's like, wait a second, I just, I can't just beat this thing down. Like, what's, I have to kind of think about something new. And it's like, that's, I think that's where the richest moments in role play come in, where you, you realize something new about your characters. You're like, oh my God, my character is growing. My character is taking a new direction that I didn't pre-program or I didn't envision for him or for her. You know, I, I think that's where some of the magic happens in, in a game for me is, um, those weird moments where the player may have a vision for their character 
And then the role play organically opens up new doors and new growth for that character. Well, I also think like even going back to your answer to the surprise question, I think it it frames potentially the way that you would want to look at creating a character in a solar punk setting is what do they really believe in? Uh, because those are the same things even talking backwards through some of the conflict is there are the you know if you look at these different societies in these different cultures there are going to be touch points that are somewhat non-negotiable those are the yeah. things that their culture and their society is founded upon and so like again it founded foundation like these are things that can't change so then you have to find the ways that uh, in the pieces that in parts that can change and the same can be true of your character because i can be a fighter that believes I should not kill anybody unless I don't have any other choice. I mean, yeah. I know that's a personal perspective with all the years of martial arts training I did. All I learned is that the last thing I ever want to do in my entire life is be in a fight. It's not yeah. fun to get hit. But the idea that if I did find myself there, I would do everything in my power to try and get back out of that situation as well. Mm. Um, and finding what is most meaningful to your character and operating in that, because again, the whole basis is that they have hope that that can work um, again, looking back to grimdark and just being like, I don't, ha I don't have hope. I just got right now. Yeah. You know, I did, I did. Um, it's really interesting when you brought that up about your own martial arts training. I did uh, many years of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I remember the first time I was allowed to um, roll for the first time or to, to, for those who don't understand the term roll is like, you're, you're kind of sparring against somebody else. And um, the first time I did it and it was like, all adrenaline and kind of like crazy movements and you just like everything go all the training goes out in your head and you just kind of like flailing and um because of that i started playing some of my fighters a little weird uh it's like i would just be like oh yeah i lose my i, I just give up my own initiative or i skip this round because like my 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 first level fighter is completely paralyzed with terror now that he actually has to he pull out a sword and do something with it like he doesn't know what to do or the first i remember one time like i was in a fight with a fighter and it was like it got bloody really quick before it was my turn. And I was like, yeah, my fighter vomits. He, he just starts throwing up because he's so like overwhelmed hit with nerves and, and the blood and gore. And and I think the players at the table are like, wait, what are you doing? And I was like, he's first level. This is the first real fight. He's the first time he's seen blood in, in combat. He isn't what he's doing, right? He's scared out of his wits. And that's kind of fun. If you can survive those moments, it can be fun. Because then you can just start learning some new things about you. Yeah, and the and the the training that I did, they would, you know, we would spar, and he, the guy that the guy that taught me was very good about the psychology of some of it. And he said, to do the other person on the other side a favor, you need you need to hit them because, like you're saying, one of the things about being in your first fight is you get hit, and your brain goes, "Hey, what did what did we do to find ourselves here, and how can we find our way out?" And <laughs> so, and still, so, yeah, yeah. But, and, and but it's also again even going back like. Again, it's not the, the the whole thing with the solar punk is it's not about the conflict. It's about having ways to to get to the other side of the conflict that are tried and true, I think, is, is another thing that, you know, it's not like this brand new thing where like, oh, we all have the solutions. It's like, no, it's not even about having the solutions. It's about being able to find the solutions, I think, is, is that other element of like, we don't have all the answers, but we have a system to find answers, which is like, which is a really great thing. I mean, if, I think when you say it that way, I also think that like solar punk builds into very different ways. So like in a very like, you know, late stage capitalistic kind of society we have right now, it's very much the mindset of like winner takes all, right? Like there's one person in, and, and they are going to win and like their only primacy and their only goal is to win for themselves. And I think solar punk says, hey, there can be a mutual victory. 
Like we can, we can all win. There's this, we can build these scenarios where it's win-win for everybody. And maybe your victory is not as gigantic as it would be if you just cared about yourself, but maybe we all get some piece of that pie together. And I, I really like that. I, I think there's something really satisfying by saying, Hey, I'm happy with this outcome. It's also cool that you're happy with this outcome and that like, we're both happy with this outcome. And I maybe want to do business with you again, or, and I want to see you again. And I'm like, maybe we can work on other things together because we can, we can have more victories together as opposed to like me winning completely and burning you down and then going, yeah, I'm, we're never going to talk because uh, I, I treated you like garbage as I, as I took over. And, and when you look at some of the struggles we have in modern day society um, and how, you know, individuals, corporations, different structures kind of like just, just consume almost like a virus, everything around them and just destroy and destroy for their own victories. Solar Punk says, Hey, there really is a different road and different path out there. Um, and let's explore that. Great. So one of the other questions we have, and one of the questions I absolutely love to ask is, is there homework that we can give our listeners? And it's the best kind things that they could read, that they could watch, that they could um, experience to kind of get more of those solar punk vibes. Yeah, you know, I think it, it, because the movement is pretty new, there's not a ton of material right now out there. You know, it's it's certainly you know, and in literature, you could say maybe um, Ursula Le Guin's like the, the dispossessed might be in that kind of that realm or uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Pacific Edge are, are books that may be worth checking out. But they were done before the, the term was coined, so they're not like a neat necessary fit. You can go to Amazon and actually just kind of Google like solar punk literature. And there's a bunch of new anthology, short story anthologies that have come to come out. I haven't checked them all out, but there's some good, good writing out there in these short story anthologies that are worth checking out, maybe seeing what else is, you know, out there. Um, Studio Ghibli, kind of some of the movies like Castle in the Sky, um, you know, that might be also kind of fit into the, you know, solar punk, you know, kind of idea. Video games wise, I don't know if I have any or, or regular games. I don't know if I have any strong recommendations. I've heard and I haven't I haven't checked it out myself. Um, the, the game, you know, Cities Cities Skylines has a Green Cities expansion that like let players like create eco-friendly infrastructure and buildings. Uh, but the eco-friendly infrastructure and buildings, I think, are only one aspect. That's great. That's the environmental aspect, but it doesn't necessarily t- talk about the communal aspect of it. So, you know, I think what's exciting about the genre is that it is relatively new. And so it is, it's open to new ideas and new creators and new writers and new designers and, and new storytellers building out this vision. I think we have been trapped, you know, from maybe the 80s, you know, um, especially the early 80s onwards in this hyper-capitalistic kind of mindset. So a lot of the stories have been around these hyper-capitalistic, you know, winner-take-all kind of stories. And that's kind of involved, I think, from the early 80s, um, because Grimdark was not really a thing in the early 80s per se, um, but Cyberpunk started coming out of the 80s. And then I think Grimdark evolved as as a hyper-capitalistic model started to become pervasive and, and the destructiveness of that model started to become pervasive. Um, things like dystopia uh, ideas started to come out of that and, and grimdark started to come out of that. And I almost think this is like the next evolution. It's like, hey, okay, let's reject all of that or let's let's see alternatives to that. And so um, the solo punk wave, I think, is in its nascent movement, but it is certainly, um, you know, starting out. And I think that'd be great to see more writing and designing around it. Yeah. <laughs> 
the, the grim dark. It just the best way to describe it just popped into my head. I only need three colors. I need black, white, and red. That's it. <laughs> <I'm> done. <laughs> yeah, or, or you can put some gray in there too. Oh, yeah, <laughs> on occasion. Um, the the one. So I looked it up, and in TV tropes, hit or miss sometimes on some things. Yeah. But they did bring up a really interesting one, and I would have never thought of it. Um, but the depiction of Alderaan in Obi Wan Kenobi. Oh yeah, because that's a good one. Yeah, because it it's a no weapon society. Those green spaces are are interspersed between like the actual buildings that they have, and then it's yeah. So it was just an interesting one that I wouldn't have thought of. I and I agree with that. That it has certainly solar punk elements to it for sure. It feels um, a relatively equitable society. You know, low weapon or no weapon society, uh, a harmony with with nature. Yeah, sustainable environment. Yeah, I think Alderaan is, and that makes a lot of sense. I think it's, you know, when you think about the the, the oppositional force, you know, Alderaan gets destroyed by the Empire. That makes a lot of sense storytelling-wise that, like, these two systems are in deep conflict because the, the Empire is, you know, a, a, like, a monstrous, like, rimdark or a hyper-capitalistic or hyper, you know, tyrannical society. And so... Yeah, I think that's a great that's a great piece. Yeah, another one. Again, I was not prepared for it, but especially with as steeped as I am because of my own children, in the lore of it is the idea that Pokemon has really interesting ways that have solar punk aspects in the sense that, like, the industry isn't like it's not a huge industrial place. There are just vast swaths of this realm that they're in that is completely untouched by man. Oftentimes they utilize and work with the Pokemon because, you know, it's a children's show. So they're never just outright killing the Pokemon and they're working with them to like even fuel that industry in certain ways. Um, And they're like they have these deep bonds with what are essentially animals in their world and this uh, this interesting back and forth. So, yeah, there were some really interesting elements of that that are that are solar punk. That's a great that's a great example. I don't know Pokemon so well, so I I can't comment. Um, Thoughtfully on it, but that that sounds that does sound like solar punk. I, I think solar punk has a lot of ability to imagine or reimagine in different ways, and I think that's the exciting part about it is that like my interpretation of it's going to be different from yours, and it's going to be different from somebody that maybe is living in Tokyo versus somebody that might be living in in Bangalore, right? And I think I think in you know well, how do we how do we get to that sustainable society or the communal aspects? I think we need a lot of creative people imagining different versions of it to get to new solutions um, and new new community-centered societies and, and, and find better ways to live with our environment peacefully and, and, and fulfill, in a very fulfilling way. Yeah. The, the, so there's two more that I, that I came up with. When Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, when they end up in the realm that has... Spoilers! If if you didn't watch the MCU, I apologize. <laughs> I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to spoil the thing that came out yesterday. The but the idea when they end up at the one that has the Illuminati, like it has some solar punk vibes because you have these um, skyscrapers, but like they're green. The green spaces that are mm-hmm. on in near and like basically taking over, like like the symbiosis between both nature and the industrial complex of we have so many people that need spaces to live, but also bringing nature up with it is um like a really interesting place to set it and then you know build out your world from there yeah and i think that that's great that's another great example i think if people want to even just like they google it and they look at google images for solar punk you're going to see some really great amazing yeah uh interesting inventive artwork and that that's that's kind of very inspirational i looked at a lot of that artwork as i was building the radiant citadel and it 
it informed my thought process around it. Yeah. And then the the one the one that I'll leave us with and then we'll get all your info to send people is the probably the grimmiest and the darkiest, if you will, um, setting of all time is Warhammer 40,000. OK, but, but apparently the Tau Society that are kind of like it is pseudo close to space elves. Um, apparently, that's how their whole society functions on the back end. Everything that's oh. been talked about is that it's this green space and this like, again, that symbiosis between both like technical technological advancement but also bringing nature together but then of course then you have just some of the grimmest and darkest um, stuff that is out there from art to play to um every aspect but the idea that again like that solar punk vibe can still exist in something that is so dark which makes a lot of sense it could be a response to the darkness around it right and so they can be like hey this this one enclave is pushing back against that darkness i like that that's kind of cool so then the other question, like I said, I have is where can people go to see all of the awesome things that you're doing? And like you said, keep keep track. And then when when we can talk about other things, we'll probably have you back on. You know, the easiest way to find me is probably on social media, on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Ajit George SB. That's A-J-I-T, my last name, George, uh, S-B uh, at uh, Twitter. And that's where I'm probably the most active. I have a website. If you want to reach out, you can reach out that way, too. Um, and that's just actually, if you Google my name, it's going to be one of the first things that pop up. So it's pretty quick to find. It's pretty easy to find me. If you're interested in any of my work in the nonprofit field, you can you can check out Shanti Bhavan, Shanti Bhavan Children, um, or you can watch the, the the Netflix documentary series Daughters of Destiny. It's a four part series, a limited series on Netflix, and you can see what my full time work looks like in India. It's a pretty cool series. That is awesome. Um... We will have links to all of those things in the show notes. I point it down again. I do it every recording. No one can see me do it, but I point to the show notes like they could. <laughs> I think it's just because I watch so many YouTube videos. It's just yeah. like second. Uh. Yeah, just head on down there. Um, but yeah, we'll have links to um, to those in the show notes. And then again, just Ajit, thank you for coming on and spending some time and then sharing the good word of Solarpunk. Uh, it was a pleasure, Neil. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you today. And um, I hope you enjoy it, your listeners enjoy it and uh, get something interesting out of Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel for themselves. We just want to thank Ajit for, again for coming on, spending some time with us, talking about solar punk and all of the other things in this episode. Of course, if you wanted to get a hold of us and tell us how you've been adding solar punk to your game, you can always head over and email us at dungeonmasterblock.com at gmail.com and of course if you see fit head over to your podcatcher of choice leave us a rating and review it is always helpful and if you want to find us on social media search dungeon masters block on twitter we're at dm dms underscore block and of course we're on facebook and hopefully wherever else we need to be and as always the dungeon masters block is a proud member of the block party podcast network where you can check out other shows like detentions and dragons dungeons and dragons and daughters and more and as always thank you for listening to the dungeon masters block the place where we come to talk about the dungeon master the most important person in the game good night good luck and keep on dungeon mastering
goodbye.